Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining this launch of Open Gaza Architectures of Hope. Dr. Dean Sharif Sharp, I'm an LSE Fellow in Human Geography in the Geography and Environment Department, and also an associate of the Middle East Centre. Uh, I was co-director of Terraform, and my work focuses on urban questions centred on the context of the Middle East. The order of proceedings for today is that we're going to have a conversation with our three invited speakers around three central questions, and there will be time at the end for a Q&A. And kindly ask you to type your questions into the Q&A box that you can see below and not in the chat box. This event is recorded and also live streamed on Facebook, and it's also being simultaneously translated into Arabic. And again, at the bottom there, you can see an interpretation button that if you press, you will get the translation. Um, if you're using social media, please use the hashtag LSE Middle East and you can find um, myself and on, on Twitter at, at Dean Sharp. And please also feel free to tweet questions that if we don't get to today that I will try my best to answer at some point. I'm really delighted to introduce the three speakers that we have today that all contributed to the book. Um, and firstly, just to say that Hadil Asali um, can't be with us because of uh, the disasters that are going on in Texas at the moment with having no water or electricity. And so we're deeply sorry that Hadil can't join us and we're sending her as much solidarity and support as we can muster and are deeply thankful for Fadi Shire for stepping in at the very last moment to come and contribute to this discussion. Fadi um, contributed the chapter Re-Ecologizing Gaza as an introduction to some of the work that Visualizing Palestine have done and that is also in the book. Fadi is an architect, urbanist, design strategist and is doing his PhD in architecture at Manchester on the politics of survivability how military technology scripts urban relations. And again, we're so deeply grateful for Fadi for, for joining us in this conversation. Secondly, I'd love to introduce you to Tariq Bakoni, who's a senior analyst for Israel-Palestine at the International Crisis Group. He's also the author of Hamas Contained. And Tariq penned the uh, chapter Gaza's Skin that illuminates the emotional connections that have been able to seep through the siege. And, and next is Hel Professor Helga Tulsuri, who's an associate professor at NYU and the co-editor, among many other books, of Gaza as Metaphor. Helga penned the article, uh, the chapter, The Internet Pigeon Network, which imagines an Israeli-free means of being plugged in through a homing pigeon internet network in the book. So, there's one speaker who is not with us today, but is always with us, and that is Michael Sorkin, who passed away from COVID in March 2020. Michael was uh, the co the, the central instigator of Open Gaza, was the co-editor of the project, and was also my mentor, inspiration, and, and champion. And I know there are many here today that that miss him as deeply as I do. But I hope there are also many of you that don't 
know Michael so well. Um, it is a great privilege and I'm deeply grateful for the Middle East Centre to carry on presenting Michael's work, engaging new communities with his work, because Michael, as well as being an architect, was a prolific writer that never stopped talking truth to power, making arguments for more beautiful, equitable and sustainable cities. And the question of spatial justice and how to achieve it was always central to his work and specifically around Israel's Palestine, but also around the region and the world. This image here is Michael giving a talk in Amman on the right to the city. And he was always active in pushing for these causes. Next slide, please, Nadine. Open Gaza is among the last Michael Sorkin terraform projects. But this is not his last work or work. Terraform was a non-profit urban research centre that Michael founded in 2005. And the aim was to investigate forms, policies, technologies and practices to create more equitable, sustainable and beautiful cities for the future of our urbanizing planet. And Michael's writings and Terraform's mission only grow stronger by the day. Next, please. Terraform's projects were always unsolicited, and this often meant no or minimal financial support. So all the projects that we did always relied on solidarity and collaboration, and this shared sense of purpose that what we were doing was important and needed to be done. Open Gaza typifies this approach. And I would like on behalf of Michael to thank all of the contributors to this project, but I know that there are also some particular people that need special thanks for making this book happen. First is Nasser Golzari and Yara Sharif, who are architects at the University of Westminster, and I know were integral to the very start of this project and we'll be doing an event on Open Gaza with the architecture community in May of this year. The next is Salem Al-Qudwa, who's a Gazan architect, now currently at Harvard. And in March 18th at the Urban Planning Development Cluster in Human Geography, will be speaking with me on March 18th around low-cost housing in Gaza that he worked on and that is featured in the book. And I would also like to stress a special thanks to AUC Press and specifically Nadia Nakib and the whole team there for partnering with Terraform and making sure that this book got out into the world, because without them, it certainly wouldn't. So thank you very much. And of course, to the Middle East Centre for this opportunity to really ground this book in the Middle East Studies community that I felt was so important. Next, please, indeed because this is Michael's third book on Israel-Palestine. The first was released in 2002, called The Next Jerusalem, Sharing the Divided City. Then was 2005, Against the Wall, and now third, Open Gaza in 2021, Architectures of Hope. Next, please. Michael initiated this project from his horror and reaction to Operation Protective Edge that happened in 2014. This was the third Israeli assault on Gaza in six years. This was already in a context in which the UN had declared that Gaza would soon be uninhabitable. It pushed the, the territory into ever deeper depths of despair. Next, please. But 
Open Gaza is not a compendium of destruction and despair. The idea of the book was to change the narrative and approach to how Gaza is studied and represented. Next. Towards an engagement with Gaza and Gazans of Palestine, both within their limitations as a territory under siege and beyond this framework. Next. To imagine a future Gaza without conflict. Open Gaza is both a demand and a cry. Next. It's a cry to extend the injustice, to end the injustice of the Israeli siege, the cycles of violence and inhumanity. Next. It's also a demand. As firm believers in the rights of the city, we demand that the Palestinian, with the Palestinians of Gaza, that they achieve beautiful, equitable, and sustainable urban life. Next. Open Gaza engages the tools of architecture and planning, of the social sciences, of critical theory. Next. In the defense of expansiveness, freedom of thought and imagination to celebrate Gaza's courage and positive capability. So these are some of the pages and from the book and, and I hope gives you a great sense of some of the material that is featured in, in the book. And now I'd like to turn to our three interlocutors to start a discussion around some of the central themes um, and issues that the book settles on. But the first question that I'd like to open um, and for Helga to start with is the fact that this is Michael's third book on Israel-Palestine that brings together people not only across geographies, but also disciplines. So can you speak to what type of engagement this brings to the study of Israel-Palestine? And also what architecture and design lens brings to the scholarly and analytical study of the Middle East and Palestine in particular. Thank you, Dean. Um, and thank you to everybody who's attending uh, and, and a kind of thanks to Michael as well for being part of this collective. Um, I'll just, I'll start with telling you that my first encounter with Michael and his work was actually through the edited volume the Next Jerusalem, which came out, I guess, about almost 20 years ago at this point. And like Open Gaza, it was this kind of eclectic collection of practitioners and of scholars um, thinking through Jerusalem's problems, limitations, needs, daily life, and so on. And for me, it was, in a sense, kind of, I want to say mind-blowing, because it was probably the first time where I encountered, encountered kind of critical theory that wasn't detached from real life or from sort of daily grounded uh, life. And I think that's in, in a sense what M Michael's work and, and, and for me, it just sort of uh, kind of defined how I started thinking about architects and urban planners at large, but in the way that Michael's work is, is um, and, and the kind of work that he supported was sort of this injecting this sort of materiality in this sort of space and the way to think about daily life in this, in this very realistic sense, while also idealistic. And by idealistic here, I mean idealistic in that it's committed to questions of justice, to questions of political justice, to questions of equality and, and so on. Um, and 
what I kind of quickly learned, and this is sort of answering that question of, you know, what are the contributions at large, is that lived space is really ultimately about what kind of political arrangement it is that we have and that we agree to or disagree to or are subject to or that we wish to change. And so that the way that we build necessarily embodies specific forms of authority, of control, of power, um, whether they're, you know, whether the environment is, 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 makes possible an authoritarian or kind of more democratic uh, mode of, of living. So questions of access, questions of who has the right to be where and in what kind of conditions about how do we build, how do we rebuild, how do we live, how do we move on both individual and collective levels, right? And so it was a sort of realization that architectural systems, technical systems, questions of urban space, uh, questions and sort of kind of related to these, what I'd call kind of socio-technical um, attention um, are really sort of deeply interwoven in the conditions of modern politics and modern life and, and, how, and how, we, uh, how we live. And so there's absolutely no denying the importance of this lived environment and both the policies that have served and continue to serve to dispossess and contain Palestinians and in the way in which these impact daily life. So when we talk about a place like Gaza or earlier, not earlier, but still Jerusalem, right? So urban planning, zoning, architectural structures, uh, infrastructures, right? Buildings, walls, sewage, checkpoints, transportation networks. All of these things are very critical um, actors if you want in Palestinian life. And all of them form part of this larger structure of control, of de-development, de of surveillance, um, of containment, of fragmentation that by and large, the Israeli state kind of imposes on Palestinians. And this impact of daily life is not just only about daily life, although we can understand it as, that, as such, but it's about the social and economic conditions that are shared by millions. And so I think part, part of the, kind of contributions in, in the way that I see them is to really kind of understand how daily life and how the sort of structures of daily life are connected to these larger, complex, socio-political forms of organization. Thanks, Tarek, yes. can, I, can I bring in you to, to interject in this? Yes, I mean, I, I, I agree. And I think Helga has put it so eloquently. I mean, I think part of the power of something like this, of this of this book, first of all, thank you, Dean, for, for this event and for, for having me here and everyone attending. But just to sort of pick up and run with Helga's thoughts, I mean, part of the power of this book is that it's uh, both bridging the, the, uh, the sort of um, reality of life on the ground and what that looks like with the fantastical and the imaginary and what life could look like. And I think the way that people often engage with these questions are to be limited and restricted by the structures which exist, that the infrastructure is just the way it is. Therefore, this is how our lives are, uh, are, are limited. This is how our lives are controlled. What something like this does, this, this book, is it brings experts and practitioners and architects and urban planners and asks them to reimagine a different reality, to reformulate what that infrastructure could look like in a way that has emancipatory potential, that, that breaks out of the limitations of the real world and creates an alternative. Um, 
And I think part of the power is that it rejects the kind of uh, system of control that is imposed on us. I mean, even, you know, we think of settler colonialism as a structure that continues and it's an ongoing process. And what a book like this is doing is actually saying, you know what, we can intervene in that process and imagine a different reality, a different future uh, that, that can have a, a, a sort of, or result in a different life, one that's more equitable for, for people today. So I think, you know, often when we talk about uh, Palestine and specifically when we talk about Gaza, we're hemmed in by the despair of the situation uh, and by the, the reality that's on the ground. And often when we imagine, the imaginary is completely unreachable. And this, this book feels like it's trying to bridge that divide and taking that imaginary and saying, well, this is what it might look like in this urban space. This is what it might look like on the ground and under the ground and around Gaza. So I think that's sort of the power of an intervention like this. Great, thanks so much, Terry. Uh, Fadi, to bring the architect to, to tell us uh, also in part what these architectural perspectives and, and also, of course, as someone that's deeply engaged with the social sciences to, to speak on this point. So thank you, Dean. And uh, I mean, it's a pleasure being here with you guys. It's uh, I wanted to start by saying it's, it's befitting that uh, Hadil got stuck in Texas, which is hit by disasters, right? I mean, and uh, these um, these kind of uh, you know environmental this kind of environmental violence, although in Texas it's not caused by occupation, but it makes us think about our relation to these environments and how we uh, you know we survive and we are connected somehow, right? So, uh, and I think as an architect, and architects are usually accused, and they have this trope of being you know, accused of only designing and producing uh, good images about a certain space while in, in a sense neglecting what's happening there. But I think this is completely the opposite. And I think this is Michael's uh, genius and in, in not only producing an architecture book, but producing a book, a multidisciplinary book that, as, as my colleagues already said, that changed the image, right? So, so it is an architecture of hope or, or architectures of hope. But at the same time, it's not a mere marketing exercise. It's actually a, a, an intervention on the discourse on Gaza. And I would like to think that as architects and urban planners uh, in, the, in, the, in the delightful company of, of, you know, of social scientists and, and people in the humanities that, that we finally also have a book on Gaza, not a book on the conflict itself, right? But a book on Gaza and a book on the people and the possibilities that these people have in relation to their environment including the fact that they fight every day and seeing that fight as as a, as the source of agency rather than you know uh, pitying uh, that environment but actually acknowledging that agency and, and you know holding it up but at the same time imagining what kind of of different built environment imaginaries could could be there and i think that's the best testimony to remember michael and to literally see how uh, uh, he, you know, we acknowledge we acknowledge the violence and we acknowledge the atrocities, but at the same time, we also we have a job. And as architects, uh, as much as we have a critical job, but we do have a propositional job. And I think that's what Open Gaza brings to the discussion. Great, thanks, Fadi. Yeah, thinking through this intersection of architecture and design and some of the themes that you've broke on and and this desire to 
break out of this reality, this the limitations that are put on, and thinking of the imaginative, you know, Tarek, in particular, your work that is very policy orientated, you know, working at the International Crisis Group, how then does that imaginative and the reality get for you grounded in policy reports or frameworks? Can, can this type of book contribute to those dialogues and ways of thinking? Yes, thanks. Thanks, Dean. I, I, I think I want to start by <clears throat> just following up on, on something Fadi said and then uh, linking that to the policy discussion. I think it's really important to celebrate the fact that this is a book on, on Gaza, as Fadi has said. And uh, I, I would add to that and say, you know, at the, at the beginning, when I, I was brought into this process, I was actually very worried about contributing to a book that was only on Gaza, because I worried that that might be something that could add to the sense of fragmentation, that could continue this sense of exceptionalizing Gaza and making the Gaza Strip uh, you know, its own challenge or issue and separating it from the rest of Palestine, which is unfortunately how much of the policy world reacts to and deals with Gaza. Um, but what, what we can celebrate from this book, and I agree with Fadi completely, is that it, it, even though it focuses on Gaza, it refuses this exceptionalization. The entire premise of the book is that Gaza is connected to the world around it, uh, obviously to Palestine, but also to the world around it. Uh, and so in that sense, it deals with Gaza and Gaza's particular challenges without falling into this uh, trap of fragmentation. And I think this is in one way how it can uh, feed into the discourse uh, in, in the policy world. I think often uh, policymakers view the Gaza Strip for many reasons, historical reasons, economic reasons, obviously uh, reasons that are uh, encouraged by the Israeli regime, uh, are, are present Gaza as a separate entity and one that needs to be a, a problem that needs to be resolved, a problem that needs to be pacified. And the infrastructure around Gaza speaks to that. So the starting point for most policymakers is that the blockade is there for security reasons. And because we can't address these security reasons, we have to deal with the Gaza Strip under blockade. So already the approach to dealing with the Gaza Strip is hemmed in and limited by an infrastructure that is uh, focused on demographic engineering and on settler colonialism and on injustice. What a book like this is saying is that actually the infrastructure can be itself can be challenged. We don't take this as our starting point. Actually, our starting point can be reformulated and reformed and imagined in a different urban space and in a different form of, of, of spatial uh, distribution in uh, an infrastructure that is more equitable. So that's, I think that's an intervention that's really important just in thinking about how po the policy world deals with Gaza. Um, I think there's also another uh, important contribution that's happening here that I think is important for the policy world. Often when you speak, unfortunately, to policymakers and, and politicians to step out of the academy and enter this world, uh, the, the first uh, or the most persistent pushback you'll get to most uh, interventions that are needed uh, on the ground is that things are infeasible. You know, policymakers just 
repeat the fact that certain aspects of uh, any kind of intervention are infeasible, either for domestic political reasons, for you know Israeli uh, obstacles, for whatever the case might be, you're already hemmed in by what's feasible and what's not infeasible. And often it's easy to dismiss scholarship and academic articles, unfortunately, from the policy making world as totally infeasible, you know, this is the ivory tower, this doesn't speak to reality on the ground. This book refuses that premise as well. So it's bringing in practitioners and people who practice their trade and people who work in architecture and urban design who are on the ground, who are creating uh, what is feasible and what isn't feasible. They're coming back to the policymaking community and saying, these aren't merely academic theoretical discussions. This is the real world, and this is what it might look like. And I think this is something that policymakers might be more able to hear and more able to integrate into their uh, their day to day. Understanding that the premise that they're starting from is one that is based on injustice and oppression, and there can be an alternative uh, that might might be feasible. So I think that's that's the power of this intervention as well. Yeah, thank you, Tarek, for those really thoughtful comments. And I, I'd also just like to emphasise in relation to the method of putting this book together, that it was absolutely central that there were a series of discussions uh, at Terraform's office in York and also on Zoom around, around bringing people from Gaza, Palestine and, and around the world to discuss some of the many issues that Tarek uh, pointed on. You know, how do we ensure that Gaza is not approached in a way that is fragmented off from Palestine and um, and that broader imaginary and reality. And of course, then that, that's also how the title of Open Gaza uh, came into, into being through constant dialogue and collaboration and sharing ideas um, that was absolutely essential to many of the, much of the content in terms of the, what is in these chapters and also this book coming together. I'd just like to switch to uh, uh, from the policy to the scholarly and and Helga from a policy uh, sorry, from a scholarly framework uh, as someone also that has co-edited a book um, on Gaza Gaza as metaphor and thinking about the broader literature in Palestine. How how would you situate um, open Gaza in that regard? Thanks. Um, I mean, I will reiterate this, this kind of really important point that uh, Todd brought up and that you followed up on, right, which is, um, and I think I, I see it in a different form in the chat, which is this question of, you know, how do you deal with the fact that Gaza is contained, right, and is kind of sequestered, um, and then think of possibilities that doesn't make that containment sustainable in and of itself, right? But that sort of pushes Gaza out, which is why in, in certain ways the, the book is called Open Gaza, right? So I so just to kind of reiterate, I think part of it is sort of part of the book or in the project is recognizing the limitations that exist at the same time sort of taking it as axiomatic or kind of a priori that Gaza is part of Palestine, is connected to sort of questions of Palestinianness and beyond. And, but at the same time acknowledges the difficulties that are specifically faced in Gaza, um, 
but thinking of Gaza as a way to connect to other issues that are happening, like, you know, whether it's climate change or rising water levels or great ir irrigation or urban density, all sorts of problems that are not necessarily only unique to Gaza, but that can, but in, in both theoretical and practical means kind of connect the questions faced by Gazans uh, to uh, other parts of the world. And I think part of the things that are going on in some of these chapters are these kinds of how do we connect Gaza to these different uh, to these different spaces to these different questions and so on, um, and I think that that in and of itself, if you want, is a way to think about how this book and 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 this kind of work kind of contributes to scholarship, whether in Middle East studies or Palestine studies, um, in um, in both kind of recognizing the the limitations that are on the ground but also moving beyond just simply offering a critique of them right i think part of what is 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 in a way unique about this right is it goes to that step of okay well what are not just what are the problems but what are the possible solutions right so i think if i think of something like eyal wiseman's work Right, and whether it's Hollow Land or some of his other work, and he's probably the most, I don't know, well-known architect who's not simply in the realm of architecture, right? And I and his work is incredibly important, uh, but I feel like this book sort of takes the next step, right? So it's like, what are the problems, right? What, how do we analyze them? How do we read these past trajectories? But what's next, right? What are the possibilities? Um, how do we sort of do some of these things? Here are some blueprints and here are some ideas. And so in terms of how it contributes to this larger field of scholarship, I think it offers us a way to kind of think outside of the box, right? To not just be stuck in the world of, of critical theory or of addressing what are the past historical uh, conditions that we're dealing with, but it's like, okay, we're in this moment, how do we overcome it, right? How do, or how do we negate it? How do we sort of move forward while recognizing the, the very limitations uh, that we're faced with? And, and as, as I hope I kind of maybe sort of made clear earlier, I think to think about socioeconomic political conditions is to necessarily also think about questions of, of lived space. Um, so I think there's a, there's a sort of very clear connection for me between those two. Thanks, Helga. And, you know, I think also speaking to the expansiveness of the, the content of the book, you know, Tarek was reflecting on its policy implications and, and relevance, Helga's the scholarly, and I would thought it just like you to, to comment in terms of how you see the architectural uh, aspect of this, you know, its contribution, but also if you wouldn't mind just commenting a bit in terms of what Michael meant to the architectural community and, and this type of contribution to architecture? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, uh, also to, to build on what my colleagues said, and which were, you know, very great points and about, about what is Gaza and, and talking, you know, putting Gaza also on, on, the, on, the, on the table for discussion uh, and treating it like, uh, like you know, we treat, we, we do books on Lagos, we do books on on New Orleans, on, on other places. So we don't only 
we don't also exceptionalize Gaza, uh, you know, not only by the occupation, but also by the people who are, who are against the occupation. So we don't always accept, exceptionalize Gaza that way. But in order for us to do that, we have to see Gaza as such. We have to see Gaza as an urbanity. We have to see Gaza as part of life that has, obviously, it's, I mean, I think it has the, the world's share of conflict in that sense, but but we have to see it as an urbanity. And I think this is where Michael uh, Michael's legacy comes in. And uh, uh, in, 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 a, in a very uh, modest, uh, um, like memorial, uh, you know, memorial or, or, you know, small piece that I wrote about Michael when he passed away, I, I wrote that I remembered that I, I first met Michael, not, not physically, but I first learned about Michael and his work when I bought a secondhand magazine and he was talking about infrastructure and like sewage specifically. Uh, and he was saying that that's the only common thing so far between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And for once, I mean, as an architect, I was always, I was very much concerned with these critical discourses about, you know, the Palestinians and the Israelis as two just discursive things. But, but then I started to think about the reality that eventually even people in conflict, eventually they share land, they share infrastructure. And for us, this poses good questions as architects, right? So again, you could always be critical, you could always be vocal discursively, but what do you do about it? Because, because reality you know, pushes you to be, again, more propositional. And I think that's what we learned from Michael. And if, I'm, if you allow me to, to add this thing about the book, uh, I think this is, uh, we try to do this in the contribution in the chapter about visualizing Palestine's contribution, but I think this is a theme across the book where people start from a reality, right? So they do not start from what they only imagine Gaza to be. They imagine Gaza to be starting from its reality, starting from the fact that the conflict is so far part of Gaza's identity, but, uh, but also could be, right? I mean, again, you could see Gazans as, 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 again, as an extension of the Palestinians. And I like what Helga said about the, the word open. So open is, is a call on the one hand that recognizes that Gaza is closed, is under siege right now. But at the same time, it's about the fact that Gaza is, is an extension of a landscape. And, and I would end with a, with a little bit of a conceptual uh, you know, uh, idea I was thinking about is that the occupation tries to literally de-ecologize Gaza. So they try to separate the ecology, right? So, so they, you know, so they, so they cut the flows, whether it's the uh, people's flows, whether it's electricity, water in the aquifers, uh, you know, whether they, they uh, cut the airspace, the sea space, etc. And works like these, uh, even though they don't have immediate you know, uh, uh, effect on the ground or impact on the ground, but works like these help to change the discourse and the imaginary and specifically to think about these flows and how we could re-ecologize. Again, this is, I would say, what architects and urban planners think of spatially usually is re-ecologizing Gaza and re-ecologizing an urbanity and try to think that, you know, it's not about developing Gaza on its own, but it's about also reconnecting it to the environment around it. Thank you, Fadi. That segues perfectly to the third question, which is all about connection. But before I ask uh, the three panelists here this question, I just wanted to say that in 10 minutes, we're going to switch to a Q&A. So just to repeat again, if you'd like to ask a question, please put it in the Q&A um, 
message box below that you could see in the, in the um, lower part of your screen. So this question of connection, uh, the importance of connection is central theme throughout all of the chapters. We've already touched on it many times in this conversation. And I think um, it, it's clear that it, it's absolutely paramount. And indeed, throughout the three contributions that you make, connection is at the forefront. Uh, Tarek, you talk about uh, emotional connections that are able to break through an otherwise sealed off context. Helga, obviously, with the Internet Pigeon Network connection, this is imagining alternative forms of connection that are also able to escape certain forms of surveillance. And in this Israeli free means of, of connecting to, to the outside world. And Fadi, with your introduction around re-ecologizing, this is also a connection uh, to, to ecology, but then also it introduces the work of visualizing Palestine. That is a certain form of connection um, through media and, and graphics. So, yeah, I'd just like to invite the three of you um, to expand on those themes and then we'll open to Q&A. Um, Tarek, can I ask you to, to start? Sure, yes, thanks, Dean. I mean, I think that the, the way that I approached my piece was to uh, think about, this. I'd been working a lot of the, the scholarship that I'd been doing and the research that I'd been doing had been focused on this idea that Gaza is increasingly isolated and, and, and contained uh, demographically and, and politically and in, socially as well and economically, obviously. So in every possible way, uh, the, the blockade and the Israeli system had managed to create this reality that was almost entirely isolated from the rest of the world. And in some ways, you know, this we saw this last year in COVID where, where the first cases were recorded months after they were recorded elsewhere in areas around the Gaza Strip, which, which is a testament to how effective this regime of isolation and containment that is placed on the Gaza Strip is. And, and, and I began thinking of it and, and building on the work of other scholars like Yael Weisman and others about uh, how this system of control has managed to create an entire ecosystem in Gaza that is almost managed down to the calories that are allowed to come into the Gaza Strip and not. So in, in some ways, a formidable experiment that has worked because the Gaza Strip is isolated in, in many ways. But what, uh, so, so thinking about this, this isolation, I, I realized that there was actually a counter trend that was happening, which was that as Gaza was in, in, in reality being isolated, in other ways, it was actually becoming, uh, as it had always been, a key to the Palestinian story and key to the Palestinian narrative. Uh, you know, even with things like the Great March of Return, it's a continuation of Gaza being the center uh, of the Palestinian struggle where the Palestinian, you know, the, the majority of Gaza's inhabitants are refugees and, and the demand for return is one that's always animated the, the, the narrative um, of how we as outsiders also understand Gaza. And so I started reflecting on the emotional connection, on the fact that Gaza can be severed in every way possible, uh, but it can't be severed emotionally regardless of how uh, one uh, thinks of Gaza and what kind of a political regime they're living under, whether they're able to talk about Gaza or not and mobilize for Gaza or not, uh, the, uh, the inner thoughts of, that people might have, the way they relate to the story of Gaza can't be 
surveilled, at least not yet. I mean, I think we're moving in that direction of starting to surveil uh, thoughts, but, but th th that's where emancipation happens, that regardless of how isolated Gaza is, uh, there is still an emotional connection that connects Gaza to the rest of the Palestinian narrative and to the rest of oppressed uh, and vulnerable communities elsewhere in the world. And that's one that can't be severed. And in some ways, it's one that gives a, that is a, a, is a point of strength for Palestinians and for others, because it creates platforms for solidarity and platforms for, for core resistance. And so the idea, I think, for the piece came from this, this notion that actually one skin is the boundary of what, uh, what can and cannot be controlled. Anything within that ecosystem that's withheld within the skin, that one's minds and and emotions are actually beyond control. Um, but I mean, I say that also with a lot of uh, fear or, or skepticism or cynicism, because I also talk to Palestinians in Gaza uh, or Palestinians in the West Bank, I want to say, and, and their, re their relationship to Gaza has been severed, the way they relate to Gaza, the way they think about Gaza, because they haven't seen it or felt it or touched it or visited it. So, you know, even that final frontier, the emotional frontier is one that I think uh, is, is being threatened. But in some ways, I think it's the most, uh, the most powerful uh, part of how Gaza is still connected to the rest of the world. Great, thank you, Sarah. Helga, can I bring you? Um, yeah, so I, I think I took a sort of really different approach. I kind of started out with the fact that, well, there's no such thing as any internet connection or any kind of telecommunications connection that goes in and out of Gaza that is not controlled uh, by Israel, right? That doesn't physically actually have to be routed with Israel, and for which Israel has to gain a lot economically and, and surveillance-wise and, and so on. And so I started thinking about how do you try to build this platform of communications uh, that kind of uh, mitigates, if you want, or, or, or does away with some of these. And so on the one hand, it became this kind of philosophical, almost kind of ontological question of, can one be connected and not be dependent, right? Can you be part of a network, whatever network it is? In, in my case, it was communications network, but can you be part of a network and still have sovereignty? And, and what, does that, what does that look like, right? Um, and so, so there was a sort of like philosophical, if you want kind of question or sort of paradox, but at the same time, I wanted to approach something kind of quite practical as in like, what is it that we could put in practice? So what kind of telecommunications network would Gaza require to connect to the outside world that would, that would circumvent all of these sort of draconian limitations that are actually imposed on Gaza? And you know, I, I started sort of thinking about uh, a variety of things and many things seemed technically feasible, right? Uh, but would quickly run into economic, political or other kinds of problems, right? So, um, you know, you can't necessarily say, oh, well, let's just lay uh, a new fiber optic lab cable, right, uh, right to Gaza, because, you know, that costs millions and millions of dollars and could easily be severed by, by Israel. Um, you know, I started thinking about things like floating modem balloons, right, and all sorts of what seemed a little bit kind of outrageous. And then it kind of dawned on me that the, the idea of the outrageousness of the different systems that I started thinking about were that 
any solution has to kind of work around these very sort of nightmarish, absurd, and non-technical kinds of constraints, right? These very political uh, constraints that are imposed. And so for me, it's just sort of like, you know, one, one sort of set of questions led to another. And I eventually I got to something, I mean, it sounds a bit nuts, but I, I did come up with this uh, kind of a large scale network for the entire Gaza Strip uh, and how it can connect to points both inside and outside of Gaza that is as free as possible from forms of Israeli surveillance. Uh, but also I think for me importantly was, uh, it, it, it kind of got me thinking about much bigger uh, sort of questions about, you know, what does it mean to understand one's infrastructure? Um, you know, what does it mean to sort of try to make things simple again in this world in which everything is super complicated in which, you know, things like communications networks are not intelligible, right? Uh, in which we have to pay a lot of money or use a lot of power and use a lot of energy to do something that we kind of take as as, as a given in many parts of the world. And so, it, it, you know, for me, it was sort of like, how do you take control and how do you reclaim all of these different things that exist in the world, all of these different operations, right? Communications being one of them. Um, and, and try to sort of regain some, some, uh, some element of control while also being environmentally friendly, while being uh, sort of uh, aware and conscious of the limitations that Gaza is faced with. Thank you, Helga and Fadi. So uh, in the uh, chapter uh, on, or the contribution from Visualizing Palestine and myself, uh, so the work first, uh, the work, I think many people are familiar with, with the work from Visualizing Palestine. So uh, we, there were selected uh, infographics that were featured in this chapter, and then I provided the kind of introductory text to that. And uh, what I wanted to say, and I think this will speak, I, I think I noticed uh, there's one question about the issue of practice, and that usually comes up, uh, you know, and asks academics or, or you know, people in, uh, who produce books, how does that relate to practice? And that's, that's a reasonable question. And I think, uh, but the answer is a more complicated one, as I will explain through our contribution, but also through how it applies to other contributions in the book. So uh, at Visualizing Palestine, uh, we, you know, it's a collective uh, that uh, started working on Palestine, but then started working on different issues in, in the uh, Arab region. And it's a collective of different people spread out through, you know, throughout the world. And it's a perfect example of how today, you know, you, you have this open source collaboration, you have different people pitching in, but at the same time, you have a specific cause that you're working towards or you're working on. And I think, uh, one interesting thing about the innovative work of uh, visualizing Palestine is the fact that it does not just produce outputs, but the outputs are designed as tools that could be used in educational settings or it could be used for advocacy or activism, uh, including being used in this book, but also literally being used in uh, actual events organized at universities and on other uh, spaces and places uh, across, uh, not only in Palestine, but across the world. And uh, I think that is, you know, that ties also other parts of, uh, of this book that are uh, in themselves uh, practices, maybe 
uh, that started in design studios, and maybe Dean, you could speak more to this in a bit, uh, uh, whether they are design studios in uh, Palestine or design studios in other places like the UK or the US, where, where we study Palestine and we study what's, what's happening uh, in the conflict. And I think the question of practice accordingly is not a problem of, or it's not a matter of just producing a policy and publishing in a book and trying to implement it, but it's bringing this, this network of people who practice in different ways and whose practice needs to be seen also. Uh, and I think this is part of our contribution, uh, you know, with visualizing Palestine, the practice needs to be seen uh, over a longer period of time rather than expecting, um, you know, immediate solutions and uh, immediate interventions, but actually, you know, uh, practices that lead to raising awareness, leads to more engagement, leads to, you know, again, proposing or, or providing propositional approaches, because we're not dealing with, 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 a, with a typical architectural problem here, right? We're not, we're not just building a, a small room or doing something else, but we're actually dealing with, with, uh, with a historical cause, we're dealing with conflict, we're dealing with, with the survival and the, the life of people. And I think that merits uh, not just this book. This book is just a modest contribution in, in, a, in a large sea of, of different contributions, including people giving their lives and, you know, people, people you know, sacrificing much more valuable things than, than just writing uh, a piece of text. Fantastic. Thank you, Fadi. And now just turning to the q and I, I can see there's a lot of questions around practice and grounding in Gaza. And I'd just like to reiterate that on March 18th, I'm going to be having a one-on-one -on -one discussion with Salim Al-Qudwa in our uh, urban planning development cluster. And we're also going to be doing a podcast that will be later out in March. And Salim has done uh, a series of affordable housing projects that are real and have been built. Um, in Gaza and has worked there significantly. So I'd really invite you to also participate in that um, conversation uh, for those that are particularly interested in the work of practice and material projects. Um, but also maybe uh, I could start off with Tarek as well, just detailing the experience and, and engagement and possibly how we could also take Open Gaza forward in, um, in Gaza itself. And just to say that uh, it was the intention for this book to be a exhibition in Gaza, but um, not only COVID, but also of course the passing of Michael has meant that this has not been a material plan, but it's certainly still the intention. And I very much hope that we're able to achieve this. But pass it to you, Tarek. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, just in terms of, you want me to answer the questions around the practicalities, you mean? And also maybe perhaps how people in Gaza would see a book of this type and the, your own experience and engagement with, with Gaza. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, there's a lot to say. I think that it's it's often, especially for me and through my own research, obviously I've been to Gaza and I've done my fieldwork there for the PhD, but I never, I never feel uh, qualified or able to talk uh, about Gaza because uh, because of the reality of the fact that access is restricted. And this is one of the tools that are used by the Israeli uh, regime to prevent 
this kind of uh, fr flow of movement and, and people and thoughts and ideas between those and the rest of the world, which is why I think a book of this type is very important. So I do think that this uh, material uh, is built on the expertise of people uh, who know Gaza intimately through their professional life and through being there and having uh, family and friends and colleagues in Gaza. Um, and through uh, the, the scholarship and the study of the reality of what Gaza is. And I think that it's uh, been con a conscious effort on behalf of myself, certainly, and I know uh, Dean and Michael and the rest of the contributors to make sure that this book is the product of uh, engagement with uh, Palestinians living in Gaza, not uh, speaking to uh, Palestinians living in Gaza. And I do think that the book manages to achieve that in ways that are, uh, that are quite powerful. I also think that in, in the way that I think about this book and, you know, obviously different contributors might have different ideas, but the way that I think about this book is as a beginning of a conversation uh, and as a platform that, that will allow engagement to begin happening. Much of the uh, work and the contributions that have happened are trying to imagine different realities that people in Gaza can uh, live in and, 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 and grow in. And in that way, it's a sort of an offering in, in some ways to open a conversation about what that, uh, what that might look like. Thank you, Zahir. Helga, if I did you want to add anything to that question? I get as a multi-part question, so I'm, I'm sort of, I, I'll just say in terms of the practicalities, I think there are a lot of, and we haven't necessarily sort of dealt with them in detail, but a lot of the chapters are uh, actually quite, I don't know what the word is, blueprints, right, of what can actually be done uh, in terms of specific problems, whether it's about energy or power or sewage or uh, children's centers or um, all sorts of things. So I think there is a lot of that element, uh, while at the same time, sort of uh, kind of much bigger questions. Now I've forgotten what the second part of the question is. Uh, just uh, grounding it in in the and your own oh. experience of, of Gaza. Right. Yeah, and I think again, there's a sort of combination of people who, or or you know, kind of researchers, scholars, architects who are working with. Uh, people in Gaza, right? There's also kind of, a, if you want, like Hadil's contribution at the very end, it's kind of unfortunate that she wasn't here, but it's also a little bit of a like, well, here are the resources that one can actually uh, connect to in Gaza, right? Here are the actual scholars that you can work with and the research centers and the libraries and so on. So there is this sort of recognition and, and involvement, uh, both in the practical, in the sense of uh, here are people in Gaza who are also contributing to the book, but also kind of the reverse, right? There's also the how-to for people who are not in Gaza who might want to think about um, how to build those networks. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to move to the question by Hadi Haim on um, that asks, I'm glad that Tarek mentioned settler colonialism and the aim must be now for tackling this and working towards decolonization of all parts of Israel-Palestine. Any comment on this? Um, so, I mean, I, I can come in and, and sort of say a few a few uh, points. I think that uh, often, again, this goes to the idea of the state of exception. You know, when you think when we think about uh, Israel-Palestine, often the focus on settler colonialism is to look at 
the West Bank and to look at the settlement enterprise that's expanding in the West Bank and Gaza becomes its own problem. You know, it's under Hamas, it's a, a quote unquote a ter terrorist enclave, it needs to be contained. When in reality, actually, when we think about settler colonialism as, uh, you know, a, a process of consolidating land under Israeli control and dispossessing Palestinians, so a process of demographic engineering, uh, what we see in the Gaza Strip to my mind at least is is the natural culmination of processes of settler colonialism that are happening in the west bank and that are happening in east jerusalem and that are also happening for palestinian communities within israel itself where the palestinians are uh, enclosed in smaller and smaller urban enclaves surrounded by israeli territory or israeli controlled territory uh, and that form of demographic engineering is i think to the heart of settler colonialism. So rather than being an exception, the Gaza Strip is actually the linchpin of how we need to understand the question of Palestine. So when we think about the Gaza Strip, I think it then becomes, I completely agree with the, uh, uh, with, uh, with the question in the, in the sense that when we think about decolonization, it, it, the Gaza Strip becomes at the heart of that conversation because decolonization will mean the breaking out of this isolation of the Gaza Strip and, and its sort of demographic uh, uh, enclavization. Uh, and we see that already happening in the West Bank, where Area C is entirely surrounded by Israeli-controlled uh, territory in area, where, where areas A, I mean, are entirely surrounded by uh, Israeli-controlled territories in area C. And so this idea, this Gazification, I think, is central to what Israeli settler colonialism looks like. And to think about the Gaza Strip and how we can open Gaza is central to the, the question of decolonization. And I think in some ways that goes to the heart of what we're trying to do here. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I, Iman brings in an important question that I also think we'll end with as we're running out of time. Um, but it's a question that I think came up a lot in the discussions in the formation of the book as well and the various roundtables. Iman asks, I did not read the book, but I worry that working around the occupation, the blockade and hard realities on the ground would help sustain and perpetuate occupation and entertain the Israeli injustice to a new level. Helga, can I ask uh, direct the question at you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, look, I, I think that's an excellent question. And I think it's something that we all uh, sort of considered and struggle with. And I think that there's a sort of fine balance between, uh, you know, making sure that life is livable in certain ways uh, and making sure that there is sort of different forms of power and sovereignty and justice available while also recognizing that that doesn't that, that the goal is not to keep uh, this kind of closeness or fragmentation of Gaza in place, right? But to sort of uh, move beyond that. So um, I think that the some of the or, or many of of the contributions sort of deal specifically with that of what does it actually physically and in practical ways look like to kind of think of this question, right? Of how do you connect Gaza, whether uh, in different forms um, and move Gaza beyond this level of, of you know, sort of de-development of this sort of, you know, I don't know, upside down dependency of closure and so on. How do you move beyond that while also recognizing that those are the conditions in which uh, or, or those are the conditions which Gazans actually face. So I think each contribution sort of deals with that question a little bit differently, um, but, but it's something that's, that's 
that's there, right? That sort of paradox. To me, I sort of understood it as that paradox of, you know, how do you, how can you be connected but sovereign at the same time? And I think in, in a certain way, a lot of the contributions are dealing with that uh, from different uh, perspectives. Yeah, thank you so much, Helga. Um, well, thank you to Tarek. Helga, and a special, special thanks to Fadi for stepping in at the last minute. Hedil, we greatly missed you. Michael, we miss you even more. Um, this event, of course, is dedicated, just like the book itself, to the memory and legacy of Michael Sorkin, who is a profound influence on all of us, and his arguments, work, writings will carry on to only grow in importance um, and Although his physical presence will be missed, his intellectual will be greatly felt and continue to be felt. Uh, also, just like to thank the Middle East Center, Nadine, for all your help in setting up the wonderful translation that we had by Suad Kumrani. Thank you so much. And Taif Al Khudri for sorting out the recordings. Um, thank you for this wonderful launch event that will be the first of many. Um, the next is March 18th with Salim Al-Qudwa, who will be talking about his affordable housing schemes in Gaza. And um, just again, thank you all for, for being here, for being interested in the book. And I hope that it is uh, lives up to, to what we hope it, it is. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dean. Thanks. Thank Thanks, you. everyone.